0: We're in Titus chapter 3 this, this, uh, this morning, and uh, we're going we're gonna to wrap up our time here. We've been talking about being gospel men. Uh, we are created in the image of God, and we have been given unique design by God, and He's created you as a man, and He has put you in life providentially. You're either an older man or a younger man. And he's calling you to walk by grace, uh, walk by faith in his grace that he has given to us. And we have seen that that is rooted in the gospel, the gospel of God's grace. And it's a, a motivating gospel. It's an enabling gospel. But what we want to see in this last session together before our Q&A is that it's this is a fruit-bearing gospel as well. This is not just... Um, uh, indicative truths that we want to call to mind. This is not just saying, okay, I remember who I am just so I remember who I am. Uh, this is motivating us to bear fruit for the sake of Christ. That's where Paul goes with this letter that he writes to Titus. And that's what we're going to see uh, this afternoon in Titus chapter 3. And we're going to look uh, toward the very end, uh, beginning in really the next verse of what we looked at, verse 8, uh, where Paul begins to talk about a trustworthy statement. One of the, the difficulties for us that we need to always keep in mind is that we not be Christians in name only. Christians in name only. We've, we just went through a really difficult political season and I don't want to rehash any of it. I have no desire for that. But but we have, we have, uh, we have labels that are put on things. You, you've heard of rhinos and dinos. Republicans in name only. Democrats in name only. And, and I have no axe to grind one way or the other, but we understand that and, and how that's used to say whether well, it's only a title, but their real beliefs are something else is the way that's used. Well, what about sinos Christians in name only. Uh, those who would just be Christians by, uh, by outward labels or by appearances, but really there's no, there's no genuine fruit that, it, that extends from their life into the life of the church and their family. I learned something very interesting recently um, you've, you've all mostly heard of, of the Heimlich Maneuver, right? Um, you might have even had that performed on you or performed that for someone else and saving lives and, and so on. And in 1974, the, the chest surgeon, Dr. Henry Heimlich, invented this technique that we now know as the Heimlich Maneuver. That's, that's not, a, that's not a, a statement of irony. That's true. It didn't just happen to be the Heimlich Maneuver. And, anyway, um, Henry Heimlich, it's named for the doctor that, that did it. It's been used, who knows how many times, tens of thousands of times since 1974 to save people from choking and, and so on. And, but what was surprising to me was that Dr. Heimlich, until just recently, this last year, had never used the technique in real action, ever. He had demonstrated it He's a chest surgeon. He says, you know, based on science and what I know, this should work, and it does, and and so on and so forth. And he had demonstrated it thousands of times, but but never on a person who was actually choking at the time. It's quite fascinating. This is why I find this so interesting. This maneuver that has saved thousands of lives has never been used by the man for whom it is named. That is, until this last year. The now... 96-year-old Dr. Heimlich living in an uh, assisted living facility in Cincinnati, Ohio. On one particular week earlier back in the spring, he was in the dining hall of this uh, assisted living facility and he saw 87-year-old Patty Riss choking on her food. And he went over Dr. Henry Heimlich, 96 years old, and for the first time in his life, Dr. Heimlich performed the Heimlich Maneuver on an actual choking person, and he saved her. So until that very week, go with me on this, Dr. Heimlich had been Heimlich in name only, as far as what is often attributed to him. He has essentially been known for something that he himself had never had the opportunity to put into real action. So in one sense, Heimlich in name only. You should probably see where this is going, don't you? It's possible for us to live a life being known as one thing when the reality is we're something else. The main thrust of Paul's letter to Titus is that the church will not be sinos Christians in name only. Can you imagine someone who has been known as a Christian all their life only to find out in the end that they're a Christian in name only? It's just a title. There's actually some frightening words that Jesus gives us in Matthew's Gospel. But Lord, did not we do? And he will say, what? Depart, leave from my presence. For the Apostle Paul, the pretenders are exposed, and he he immediately jumps to this in chapter 1. They're exposed because they're all talk and no fruit. They're all mouth, no hands. As we've seen, Titus, these ones are destructive to the local church upsetting families again we will say it we've said this every sermon so far they profess to know god they they give voice to knowing god i'm a follower of the lord uh, they could be in that context they could be uh gentile proselytes uh, to to the Jewish faith they could say we we trust in the same messiah and so on or they could be uh guys who have come out of pagan backgrounds in Crete and have now said yeah we yeah we're christians too and and so on they could be jews who have Profess faith in a Messiah, and yet they're being exposed to something that they're not. But regardless of who they are, chapter 1, verse 16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds. We said that that is a very central word that is woven all throughout every chapter of Titus. By their deeds, they what? Deny him. They're detestable, disobedient, worthless for any good deed. Now compare this false teacher, uh, these false teachers, these pretenders to the true believers. Whom Paul says in chapter 2, verse 10, I love this. True believers will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. That's a true believer. I love that language that Paul uses there. The true believer wears the clothing of the gospel, he wears wears the clothes of the gospel. It's, it's, It's his life, it's his words, it's his it's his being a father, it's his being a son, it's being a brother to other men, it's being a friend, it's being a neighbor. The true believer wears the clothing of the gospel. It's being a worker in this world, it's submitting our lives to authorities and bosses and the and the like. Whatever our our, our places that God has providentially placed us, we wear the clothing of the gospel. And we it's interesting that Paul, when he finally mentions that in chapter 2, verse 10, it's right on the heels of talking about slaves. And if a slave, let's just go with this here, Paul's logic is something like this. If a slave under Rome's oppressive authority can wear the clothing of the gospel, how much more us? What makes this possible for believers, we saw in the last session, is the gospel the reality of a fruitful life in Christ springs from a heart that has been made new by the justifying work of Christ. You don't have to be a theologian, brothers. You don't have to be a deep thinker. You don't have to be that guy that just has it all together. God just calls us to be faithful. Be faithful. Be faithful where God has planted you as a tomato plant or maybe as a young lettuce plant. If that doesn't make sense to you, you missed last night. The Apostle Paul is writing to Titus, who is helping the church at Crete. And this is a church that is young, but it's already tired. Maybe that's you this morning. The church at Crete has been under attack. False teachers polluting the gospel of Christ. They profess to know God. The truth is they're worthless. These false teachers in Crete are are seeking to add various requirements to the purity of the gospel. And the effect of this is terrible. Chapter 1, verse 11, their teaching is upsetting whole families of the church. Not everything that comes into the church is necessarily helpful. Paul says the church actually needs to have a file cabinet, a file in its cabinet called labeled worthless. We do need to have that category. Sometimes we have to file some things and say... This is not helpful to us. This is worthless. This is damaging. This is destructive for the church. That's not being angry and and reactionary. That's just being biblical and rightly discerning truth from error and what is helpful and what is not. Now, we don't want to file everything that would disagree with me personally into the worthless category. We need to be very careful about that. But if the church is undiscerning and open to everything, then it will fall for anything. Anything. So, what does Paul advise for a tired and weakened church or just a church that's just wanting to? Maybe your church isn't tired and weakened. We're just saying, how can we stand faithful? We've said this many times. Chapter one, they must have spiritually qualified leadership. There must be a plurality of leaders. Each church uh, who in each church who are qualified, they're not qualified by popular vote, but by spiritual qualification spelled out specifically by Paul in chapter one. This will ensure Chapter 1, verse 9, that they will be both able to exhort in healthy doctrine and refute those who contradict. We need that ministry in our lives. God has placed leadership in the body for that purpose. We all need to submit to that. Even elders submit to that. We are elders, but before we're elders and leaders in the church, we're sheep. A church without healthy leadership will eventually succumb to unbiblical pressures within or cultural pressures without Paul's other answer for a tired or weakened church or just a church that wants to be faithful is chapter 2. The church will have, we looked at this last night, healthy relationships within the church. What is most noteworthy of the groups described in chapter 2 is the absence, note this, is the absence of personal preferences. If your understanding of the church never rises above your own personal preferences, then you will never be happy anywhere. You will only try to find a church that looks like you. We need a church that looks like Titus chapter 2. Older men, younger men, struggling, weakened, hurt, sometimes angry, and yet all of us are willingly placing our lives under the authority of the gospel of Jesus Christ and saying, those things may be true, but they need not be this way. The health of the church does not hinge on music styles. Sermon length, I have to put that one in there. A vibrant children's ministry or youth ministry. But the backbone of a healthy church, as we've seen in chapter 2, is mature Christians cultivating an atmosphere of meaningful discipleship. That's such a wonderful place to be. If you have that, fight for that, hold on to that. Do everything, sell all that you have to maintain that. Chapter 3, Paul's answer for a tired and weakened church or a church that wants to remain faithful is that they must stand on the true gospel of jesus jesus's saving work for his people that's what we just saw in the last session if we are not drawn to the church by the gospel it preaches then we will be led away by something else of less importance if you're not here for the message and the implications of that message you will easily be led astray by false teachers You will be led astray by those who will bring up for themselves those who who want to have their fancies and their doctrines and their pet projects tickled. But if you would stake your life and give your life to the local church where God in the face of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit is cherished and sung about and worshipped and loved, then you're at a great place. Paul is addressing a weakened church. If you're tired or weak, this is also what you need to hear here. We can ask a lot of questions. Are we suffering? Are we depressed? Are we weak in the faith? Are we immature? Are we feeling like we're on spiritual life support? Paul's answer is is Titus. We, We need healthy spiritual leadership speaking into our lives, healthy relationships with mature believers, and we need the continual reminder of God's grace to us in the gospel. And so we pick up this morning in the middle of chapter 3, where Paul is now pivoting toward the end of the epistle. And and the pivot is to now what? Okay, I've been with you up to this point. I believe all of that. Now what? Verses 8 through 11 is what we're going to primarily look at uh, in this final session. And, And through the idea of two gospel fruits that must practically flow from a true understanding of the gospel that we have just seen gospel fruits these are two gospel realities these are these are the two outworkings and and we'll look at this in kind of the big broad categories and we'll narrow each of them down in a couple of ways Uh, the first one begins in verse 8 it is pursue gospel engagements pursue gospel engagements We, we we need to be engaged in this work this is the work that what we just saw in the last session the gospel this is the work that God has given us To speak these things to others, to speak these things to one another, to remind each other of the grace in which we stand, and to hold each other accountable to that. When we speak of engagements, we have to think about those things that are priorities for us. You can ask some diagnostic questions at this point. Where do I invest my time? How do I engage my resources? How do I position my life in relation to my walk with Christ? There's many questions we can ask to that end. The question is, how do we engage the gospel? Well, Paul gives us a couple immediately practical things that, that hit each of us personally in a variety of ways. The, if we could break this point down in a couple of ways. The first, letter A, is engage with your words. The Bible, again and again, tells us to consider how we speak to one another. We see this all over the proverbial literature, the the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. We see this in James. We see this in the teaching ministry of Jesus. We need to give attention to our words. We need to be quick to hear and slow to speak we need to not just isolate ourselves so that we are the only voice in our own echo chamber that we're listening to but we are submitted chapter 1 to godly leadership speaking into our lives we are rooted and submitted and accountable to godly men and women in our churches and in our families engaging at the level of our words look at verse 8 we're in chapter 3 of Titus verse 8 he says, this is a faithful saying. Concerning this, I want you to speak confidently. Or uh, he says, insist on these things. So let's, let's stop there for a moment. This is a faithful saying. What is he referring to here? The answer is what preceded in verses 4 through 7. And here we saw the details of the sovereign grace of God in saving sinners. We, we just looked at this in verses 4 through 7. Now looking at verse 8, Paul says this gospel summary is always faithful and trustworthy. It always delivers hope. It always cuts through the false philosophies and ideas of men. It always exposes false and terrible and destructive parenting ideas. It always cuts through the the rebellious heart of a wayward son or grandson. So Paul can say these are faithful words, trustworthy words. This gospel is trustworthy. It helps expose, but not only expose, it helps heal. The gospel does hard work and it does healing work. You get the surgeon's scalpel. It is a destructive tool, actually. If You don't want a, a six-year-old bursting into the, the surgical theater with a scalpel in hand, right? He will do damage. You want a trained surgeon coming in, and that is the gospel. It cuts away the bad tissue, and it repairs, and it heals. It's the gospel. It's faithful. And this is a faithful saying. These are faithful words. You can hang on this. So notice that Paul wants us to speak with confidence when it comes to the gospel. The the ESV says we must insist on these things. You never need to apologize, brothers, for standing on the gospel. He says I want you to insist on these things, and it's emphatic here. Now this doesn't mean being arrogant, this doesn't mean being brash, this doesn't mean being prideful, this doesn't mean just throwing the wonderful grace of God that he has entrusted, this wonderful treasure that he has entrusted into earthen vessels, just throwing it in people's faces, browbeating people with the wonderful life-giving truths of God's grace. But at the same time, you never need to apologize for speaking the truth in love, so long as that is what we are doing. There's not a lot of things that that we can be confident in these days. Don't you see that? I mean... What are we drawing confidence from in our world right now? There's just not a lot there, much of anything. But you can be confident, Paul says. You can speak confidently in the hope of the gospel. This is a great reminder, brothers, that we are never called to insist on getting our way. We're never told to be ruled by our preferences, but it's the gospel that holds sway over us. It's the truth of God that we adorn in our lives the word that Paul uses here means to speak confidently let me ask you this way are are you able to speak with conviction about the gospel that's not to expose anyone here that's just to say we have more work to do right we want to be able to speak confidently we want to just be able to speak clearly confidently and with conviction about the things that matter most to us What's sad is that a lot of us, and and I've been guilty of this, we can speak confidently and with conviction about things that will not last eternity. Just to name a couple, politics, sports, but you get the idea. Those things have their place. These things belong to the world in which we live in. Some are passing, some are not, so fast. But we need to speak confidently about the gospel. If you're going to major in something, major in that. Major in the things that have truly changed your life, not just excited you for a season. If you know enough to believe, then you know enough to speak this wondrous message to others. Brothers, I want to encourage you. You don't have to be a theologian, you don't have to be some deep student or anything else. If you know enough to believe the gospel, you know enough to speak confidently to others about this wonderful, life changing gospel. He says here we must engage with our words. Pursuing the gospel also means, letter B, engaging with your actions. Engaging with your actions. We see this in the second half of verse 8. So that those who have believed God will be careful to engage, devote themselves in good works. These things are good and profitable to people, he says at the end of verse 8. Here in the middle of verse 8, we have a brief and crisp reminder of what a Christian is. This is, this is wonderful. What is a Christian? You can answer that question from verse 8b. It is one who has believed God. And they have not trusted their accomplishments, their works, but they have believed God and they trust God. This is the only right response to the gospel that Paul gives in the previous verses. We must believe. We've seen the sovereign grace of God. We've seen the sovereign work of God that is not according to works. It's a justifying work that He does. He does it. It's the Father sending. It's the Son atoning and redeeming. It's the Spirit sealing that to our account. It is sovereign work of God. It is His work alone from beginning to end. But there is our response. Verse 8, in light of that, we must believe so that those who believe will be careful to engage, devote themselves. We've not trusted our accomplishments. A gospel man does not trust in his accomplishments. A gospel man does not trust in his works. He's not trusting in his education. He's not trusting in his family name. He's not trusting in his ethnic or cultural background. He's trusting in Christ. He believes God. He trusts God. That's it. We put no confidence in the flesh. We make no provisions for the flesh. This is the only right response to the gospel here. Believing in God is... Now when we say that, and when Paul says that here in verse 8, this is not some bare mental exercise, but what he is describing here is a turning away from ourselves turning to God. Uh, We have an example of this, a really vivid example of this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, where Paul says they were turning away from idols to serve a living and true God. That's a, a true picture of, of this conversion that has taken place. That's what we have when we talk about believing. So this is not a, a bare mental assent to say, I believe some new things that I didn't believe before. It includes that, but it's much more than that. Turning to God in faith and trust is to turn away from trusting ourselves and our sin. So we must turn away from our sins and believe in Christ. Look at verse 8. This belief that Paul mentions here is a past action with a present abiding result. Theology students is a perfect participle here. So that is, those who have believed God will continue to bear fruits of that belief. You're not Christian in name only. Those who have believed God will continue to bear the fruits of that belief. Paul speaks of a belief in God that is completed at one time, yet there are ongoing results of this belief. We believe by faith alone, but that faith will not remain alone. The gospel will bear fruit in our lives if it's real. This is why Paul says that the one who believes will also give their attention to engaging their lives with fruitful outcomes. He says here, engage in good works, engage in good works. This reminds us again of the dominant theme in Titus. We've seen this word many times. There's that word again, works, deeds. Here it is again. The gospel and the fruit. The gospel and the fruit of obedience are bound together. The gospel and the fruit of obedience are bound together. Those are not opposed to one another. There is a a spurious thought of theology today that says... We just need the gospel. And what they mean by that is that any call to obedience is legalism. That, that's foreign to Paul. He doesn't believe that. Neither should we. Jesus didn't believe that. Neither should we. Those who truly are my disciples, Jesus says, will pick up their cross and they will follow me. And all that that means, there will be gospel fruit. Why is this important for the church? He says here in the verse, these things are good and profitable to people. You want your church to profit, spiritually speaking? You want it to be a good church? Tell me about your church, Bob. Tell me about your church, Fred. Well, it's just a good church. What makes it good? Oh, our music. Oh, that preacher. Oh, the children's ministry. The youth ministry is just Go! No, it's, it's, it's the reflection of the gospel in the lives of the people. And, and it'll show up in the music. And it'll show up for sure in the children's and youth ministry and, and the women's ministry and the men's ministry. And it better show up in the preaching of the church. But what makes it good is the gospel. And it, it flows out into the lives of the people. That's what he says here in verse 8. These things are good and profitable to people as we speak these things and exhort these things. Good. And profitable. The word good here means excellent, beautiful, honorable, precious. Life that is engaged with the gospel is beautiful. Men, I know we're men here, but let's recover the language of beauty as it reflects that of Christ in this sense. This is good. He says it's also profitable. That is, this gospel, when it takes root, it results in blessing. A godly life rooted in the true gospel is a profitable life. Paul addressed this back in 1 Timothy chapter 4, and he compares this to uh, temporary disciplines that we might have, you know, like working out and and being in shape and those kind of things, which, which... have a place right but he says we need to understand how it compares first timothy 4 8 for bodily discipline is only of little profit but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come so so this is something that is not only going to be in the sweet by and by and will ensure that we will be with christ forever in eternity and absent from the body as present with christ but it affects us even now it strengthens the church now it's profitable for all things, because of the promise it has even now. He says, these things here, these things, Titus, that is, these matters of the gospel, the kindness of the Father, the work of the Holy Spirit, the justifying grace of Jesus Christ, these are profitable for the church. Notice the focal point of this engagement at the end of verse 8. Profitable for whom? Two or four people. What people? What people? In this context, he is referring to those who have believed. The gospel is only good news and only profitable if you believe. That's what he says in verse 8. If you believe the gospel, it will be profitable to you. It will be good for you. It will have fruit. When we proclaim the gospel of verses four through seven, we must also proclaim, listen, friends. If we proclaim the gospel, we must also proclaim the hope of change that this gospel brings. Verse 8. Our works do not lead to grace. Our works flow from grace. And so the true gospel will result in pursuing these kind of gospel engagements at the level of our words and at the reflection, the fruit of our works and deeds. Let me give you one more this morning here. Number 2. This is the bigger point here. Avoid worthless entanglements. Avoid worthless entanglements here. Pursuing gospel engagements, that's the the positive action. There's also a negative action, right? Avoiding worthless entanglements. Now now remember the circumstances that caused Paul to write this letter. Chapter 1, verse 10, the empty talkers who must be silenced, Paul says. This is what he said in chapter 1. And he specifically warns us of of two areas. If we can drill down into this a little bit more, what do we mean by avoiding worthless entanglements? Paul specifically warns us of two areas. And and he doesn't mention this just to reach a certain demographic of those who might be uh, easily led astray by false teachers. He writes this to the church. So that's you and that's me. If you think... You stand strong against such things, then take heed lest you fall, right? Two specific areas. Divisive teachings and divisive teachers. Divisive teachings, divisive teachers. If you're not prepared for that, then you won't be prepared for when it happens. Look, let's drill down a little bit further. So letter A under that, avoiding divisive teachings. Paul. This is where Paul's mind goes. So here's the gospel, verses 4 through 7. Uh, here's the obedience that results, verse 8, in, in the gospel. Now here's some negative things that you need to consider. Verse 9, very next thing out of his mouth. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and contentions and disputes about the law, for they are harmful, and he uses the word fruitless here. He's not saying that we avoid all controversial topics and issues. Because if you think about it, the, the gospel itself is provocative, isn't it? I mean, everything we believe, I, I, I love this, and, and we have to get to a place of, of settlement in our own hearts on this. Brothers, what we believe as a church is absolutely foolish. It's crazy. Why, why do I say that? Because that's exactly what Paul says in, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 what we believe is foolish it's a it's 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 foolishness to the greek it's a stumbling block to the jew what this gospel that we believe it's absolutely foolish but that is the the bottom up approach so from the human perspective it's foolishness but from god's perspective what does paul also say in the same breath it is the wisdom of god what we believe is absolutely nuts in this world and but god is pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who were lost. But what Paul's talking about here is anything that would detract from that. Avoid these foolish things. So to be sure, what we believe and teach is not going to be welcomed by most, but, that, but that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's also not saying that we never take up secondary matters of doctrine. We are to major on the majors, but there's, that's not a reason to ignore the minors either. All Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is profitable for teaching and instruction and so on. What Paul is concerned with here are, and he spells this out at verse 9, it's very clear, are man-made attachments added to the gospel that are not necessary or profitable. Paul is not talking about secondary doctrines, but strange teachings that have no basis in Scripture. For example, you don't have to turn there, but over in 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, he gives some examples of this to Timothy. I, I urge you upon my, <coughs> this is First Timothy chapter 1 verse 3, upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, Timothy, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion. Same idea we have here in verse 9. They want to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. That's the mark of a bad teacher. It's the mark of a fruitless teacher. He doesn't understand what he's saying, and what makes it worse is he's very confident about his fruitless assertions. That's a hard heart to crack through, isn't it? Whenever Paul mentions these things, he's talking about teachings that do not further the teaching of the gospel. Now, note the contrast, back here in verse 9, Titus 3, verse 9, the the contrast of divisive teachings with the real teaching of the gospel. In verse 8, we saw the gospel is good and profitable, but that which departs from the gospel here is harmful to the church and ultimately fruitless. These teachings distract from the church. That is to say, they, they go off mission. We're not a debating society. But we're a family of believers who follow Christ. That's what we are. What happens when believers get caught up in this? We saw in chapter 1, in some cases, whole families are divided and destroyed. And that affects the church. There are some who are in our churches that are going to be more prone to controversy. They're, they're, they're brash. They, they lack gentleness they're easily drawn into complaining and finding fault still some cause divisions with mishandled words and misplaced emphasis as one writer has put it put this there is a difference between needing to divide needing to divide and loving to divide you must discern the difference there is a infinite gulf between needing to divide at times and loving to divide. Notice the example Paul gives. Foolish controversies, genealogies, contentiousness, disputes about the law. The first is these foolish controversies. I love this. Literally, morass, morass, moronic controversies. He uses the, the same word in a similar way, 2 Timothy 2.23, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations knowing they produce quarrels. The the second here um, is genealogies. Genealogies. This is a word used elsewhere only in 1 Timothy 1.4 where Timothy is warned to avoid these endless genealogies. What's going on here? This points to the Jewish nature of the opposition in, in Ephesus and now here in 1 Timothy and now here in Crete in Titus. The, the Jewish people meticulously investigated and documented their, their family lines and they would leave fanciful tells into their, weave fanciful tales into their family history. And so what would happen if that one's family history and association became the defining element of whether a person was in or out of the faith? Oh, you don't believe that? Then we're not going to have anything to do with you. And so they're adding other things to the gospel message. Third, he mentions disputes about the law. It refers to the Mosaic law in in all probability. Paul has said before the law is good, but here the church is getting twisted by minute disagreements about the law. This, This was really the trapping of the Pharisees. If you think of the Pharisees... Uh, in relationship to the gospel and the anticipation of the Messiah, they're like an onion. And Jesus coming in his ministry, he had to pull back the layers of all of that, all that false traditional teaching just so they could see what was underneath. They would focus on all sorts of layers like tithing grains and mint and deal seeds. You think you're missing the point if you're doing those things? While neglecting Real expressions of faith like orphans, widows, loving your neighbor, showing mercy toward others. Note the fruits of these divisions at the end of verse 9. They are harmful. They are harmful. Brothers, guard your hearts from things like these. Needless debating about trivial matters is not helpful for the church. It is actually harmful. That that is not someone with great wisdom and insight. That is not someone who's well-studied. That's someone who loves to divide. Taking up some obscure teaching or practice is not helpful to the mission of the church. Paul says it's actually harming the flock. They're fruitless, he says. They're useless. It's, It's idle talk that proves... To be without sustaining substance. That misguided teaching, it may sell books, it may pack church buildings, but the end result is not how many people it has, but the fruit it bears. The word he uses here, worthless, useless, is used in the New Testament to describe idols in the book of Acts. It's used to describe man's wisdom in 1 Corinthians 3. It's used to describe faith in a non resurrected Christ. First Corinthians 15. So if, if Christ is not raised, then our faith is fruitless or useless. Uh, it's, it's used to describe religion that doesn't change a person's behavior. James chapter 1, verse 26. It also is used this this fruitless, useless language is also used in 1 Peter 1 18 of a life without Christ. So for this reason, Paul warns us to avoid divisive teachings. And then finally, not only the teachings, but there might even be a possibility to avoid the teachers themselves, those who would be divisive and factious in this way. That's the next thing he says. Remember, all this is is right in the context, right in the same breath as talking about the gospel. This is not, oh, by the way, teaching. You know, like, oh, yeah, just remember, by the way, if a factious guy happens to walk in, These are things that, in relationship to the gospel, we need to be aware of them. Avoid divisive people, verses 10 and 11. Verse 10, reject a divisive person after a first and second admonition. Verse 10 is a command, and it is necessary that Paul states this with strong language. Avoid this divisive, factious person. Why is this so necessary? Two reasons are implied here. One, it's for the health of the church. And secondly, it's an opportunity to turn the device of person from his error. This is not to shame. This is not just merely to confront. This is not we just love to do those kind of things. This is hopefully to turn a wayward sinner, a wayward saint even, from the error of his way. Isn't that the goal of Galatians 6 and following? Galatians 6 1 and following? To restore such a brother in a spirit of gentleness But in this case, this is one who is factious. This is one who is clinging to his false doctrine. This is one who is going astray from the gospel that yields fruit and is getting wrapped up in these fruitless discussions and idle teachings. And Paul says they are to be rejected because he says they are in a continuous state of being divisive. So he's not describing somewhere here, reject a factious man. So the first time a brother in Christ says something factious or says something divisive, Paul's not saying reject him. The way he even uses the grammar here, this is a continuous state of divisiveness. This is someone who's characterized by this. So, don't run out and reject a good brother in Christ who is having a bad day and is even in sin for a moment. The ESV says, have nothing to do with him. And Paul uses just one word to make his point. Reject. Reject. If, if they are enslaved to this, if they will not listen They are to be avoided, but even more than that, it is the idea of removing them from the fellowship of the church. Strong language. Reject this divisive, factious person. The the word used here gives us our English word, Heretic. This is a person who is quarrelsome. This is a person who stirs up trouble in the church. It is one who is determined to get his own way so they have a divisive spirit and they easily depart and and divide along party lines. They will oppose everyone. And they will grab others, weak-willed believers, those who are weighed down with their own cares, and they will gather them for themselves. Paul referred to them, you remember, back in chapter 1, verse 10. They are rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers. What's, what's an empty talker? He could be a preacher of the Word. He, he could be a teacher. He could be leading a Sunday school class. He could be a, a counselor. He, he could be a, a, a guy, uh, just a, a father, who's always reading the Scriptures to his church, but he's an empty talker because there's no fruit. You say, where does this match up in your life? Where is this scene, the evidence of this? These are are strong words. Such a person will divide the unity of the church and bring her down if it goes unanswered. The flock will be divided, the sheep will be scattered without the care of the church. Watch out, watch out. Paul gives a stronger warning in Acts 20. He says as he's departing uh, on the beach of Miletus and he's meeting there in what I think is the only face-to-face meeting with Paul and elders in the New Testament. He met them at other places. But that's the only time we have an actual account of it. He's standing on the beach of Miletus with the elders of Ephesus, and he says, after my departure, savage wolves will come in. But not only will they come in, they will also rise up. Where? From within, among yourselves. Watch out. Guess what happened? Read 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Paul actually names some gentlemen there as these false teachers. So what is the church to do? He says here, reject a person. The word means refuse, avoid, decline. The ESV says, have nothing to do with them. Paul will say something similar in Romans 16, verse 17. I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of the Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Romans 16, verse 17. And yet notice something very carefully in verse 10. Paul is gracious toward them. Where do we get that from? Do you see grace in verse 10? Do you see grace at all? Look at it. After a first and second warning... Think about this. Even toward deceitful, scheming heretics, we find Paul extending grace. This doesn't mean he's accommodating their teaching or anything else. He says they must be warned, but he doesn't give up on them easily. there's, There's even a note of patience in that language, even toward those who are harming the church. It's hard Uh, The word warning is here, after first and second, warning is the word where we get our word newthetic from. It it literally means to put into the mind. It is instructive warning designed to bring correction. In this context, it refers to offering a strong admonition. Uh, The warning here acts as a roadblock to the erroneous teaching. We're warning you, if you stay on this trajectory, you're going to harm your own life, and not only that, you're going to harm the church, which we love. Young men, listen. If an older godly man or leader of this church says, young man, you're on this road, and if you don't, you need to listen. You need to listen to those warnings. Those are roadblocks that God has sanctifyingly and lovingly placed into your life to help slow us down. We don't like it when they put speed bumps in our neighborhoods, do we? Those are meant to slow us down and help us pay attention to things we might not pay attention to otherwise. Where would we be? Brothers, where would I be? Mm. Where would we be without people lovingly calling us back to the truth of the Scripture again and again? I wouldn't be here. I can tell you that. We urge you, brethren, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all. Yet how should we understand them if they persist in such divisive actions? Verse eleven, knowing, know this, that such a person is perverted and is sinning, being self condemned. Are we saying we're pronouncing judgment on them, we're condemning them? No. Their own actions speak for themselves. They're self condemned, Paul says. They've revealed the reality of their own perverted heart. They love division. They they, they love their own way. They love hearing their own voice. They love all of those things. This is a person who has become entangled in his own criticism and argumentative nature, and it has revealed him as being self-condemned. He uses three descriptive ideas in verse 11. Perverted, sinning, and self-condemned. Perverted. Paul doesn't pull any punches, punches here. Perverted means twisted, warped in his understanding, and they are actively sinning. The word refers to something that is turned inside out. They are twisted in their understanding. And this happens when when believers become myopically focused on preferences or pet issues. They're perverted, they're twisted, they're sinning is the second one. The tense of this word describes this as the ongoing nature of missing the mark. We all sin, brothers. We all go astray. This is someone who's enslaved and is continuing to do this. And then he uses the same kind of language to say they're self-condemned. They're ultimately revealed to be this. Paul earlier indicated that these false teachers were unbelieving and slaves to their own false teachings. They are, chapter 1, verse 15, defiled and unbelieving And to them, he says, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their consciences are defiled. And then he comes back and uses the same word here, similar word in verse 11. Well, I think I need to wrap things up here. Divisive persons tend to find trouble. They tend to stir up strife. They tend to lead believers away from the truth. They turn church members away against their leadership. They turn leaders against leaders and each other. They whisper in the corners. They slander fellow believers. They talk and whisper and gossip. What do we do? Well, it requires great patience and instruction, doesn't it? And we need that in one another's lives. We are not just the leaders of the church Brothers, older men and younger men, we are a corrective, training, and encouraging influence in the lives of one another. The ancient Christian writer, I quoted from him earlier, Chrysostom, he talks about the difference between confronting someone where there is the hope of repentance and those who are set in their sin. He says, for when a man is perverted and predetermined not to change his mind, whatever may happen, why should you labor in vain? It's like, he says, "Sowing seeds upon a rock." Rather, you should spend, rather, you should spend your honorable labors upon your own people." Isn't this what Paul's saying here? Reject the factious man. Don't get tied up in those kind of things. Brothers, give your labors to those who love the gospel, those who are living and, and breathing the gospel air. We don't have time to go there, but at the very end, of this little epistle. We we often think of the endings of Paul's epistles as just kind of filler. It's not filler. When Paul mentions names, there's a reason for that. And I love what he says here. He mentions he mentions some that this is the only time he mentions. He mentions others that we have a, a, a lot of information on, and we know how special they were to him. He even mentions a lawyer that he loves. And Apollos, whom he loves. Make sure you, you minister to these. And then after mentioning these names in verses 12 and 13, notice what he says in verse 14. Our people must also learn to engage in good what works, deeds, there's our word again, to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Isn't that what we're talking about? It's hard to change our thinking on this. It's it's hard for us to change our thinking. We like to ask the question, what can the church do for me? What can the church do for me? That's what we, we we tend to ask. We need to ask a different question. How can I ensure that nothing is lacking for them? Are we satisfied with the shared ministry? Are we content with serving in obscurity? Are we pleased to serve in areas and ways that might not be preferential? Are we satisfied with a a faithful ministry that faithfully plods along rather than a a ministry that is all superficial excitement and no depth? Are we content with average preachers like this who, who will just open up God's Word to us rather than tickle our ears? Are we eager to pursue relationships? and not positions in the church? Is our focus on being recognized or being supportive? Are we happy to share the ministry of the church with one another, doing nothing from selfish ambition and vain conceit? Brothers, a healthy church will mature to the degree that it shares the load of ministry with one another in the spirit of all that we have seen in Paul's letter to Titus. Thomas Watson said, the ship of the church may be tossed because sin is in it, but it shall not be overwhelmed because Christ is in it. May God give us ears to hear and may He give us hearts to obey as we pursue these things for the grace of God and the good of one another and the glory of God and His church in this world as we extend the gospel to those who haven't heard and to one another as we need to hear it more and more. May God help us, we pray. Would you pray with me?